It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com, along with Express Magazine. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. And our panelists today, we have uh, Christine Sampson, who's the Deputy Managing Editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chrissy. Good morning. Good to have you here this morning. We have Thank Beth you. Young, who's the Editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good morning. And we have Denise Civiletti, who's the Editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. How you doing? Good. So, it took a little while, but Shelter Island finally got their votes counted this week, and I believe it was a 15-vote margin. Uh, they ended up uh, approving the community housing fund uh, in the vote on November 8th. That makes four for four on the East End. Southampton Town, South Old Town, East Hampton Town, and Shelter Island all had the community housing fund up on the ballot this year to create uh, a new program that will generate money with a transfer tax, a real estate transfer tax, to spend on affordable housing programs. I just kind of want to put an exclamation point on this. It finally happened. And I think we sort of should underscore, this was about a 20-year effort by Fred Thiel, uh, the state assemblyman, to get this through. He started on this way back then, you know, it was, uh, and it took a long time to get the, the measure through Albany, and it took uh, two governors to to get a signature on it. Um, and then I think uh, to be able to get that passed in four towns on the East End in the current economic climate is a real success story and I think has the potential to have some real significance uh, on the region moving forward. And, and we were a little worried that they were kind of pushing the vote too, too quickly and, and that it might not pass. And um, and, and I think luckily it was, um, um, you know, we, it was proven to have obviously the, you know, voter support. I'll, I'll I have tell a quick you, question. Think, sure. Um, so out here on the South Fork, I know there were a couple of residents in a group called East End Yimby active in pushing the um, message out to vote for it. But uh, were they also active on the North Fork? Yeah, they were very helpful on the North Fork. Absolutely. Um, Michael Daly consulted with a lot of the, the people, the housing advocates up here. Um, and it, it wasn't even an easy sell at the town level to get. Um, I mean, South Old Town had to be convinced to hold the referendum. And, you know, if we were talking with, you know, a bunch of elected officials beforehand who were wondering if this was the right year to do this. Mm -hmm. um, because And Riverhead sat it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was a real, I'll, I'll tell you that privately, uh, a lot of the folks um, in the towns and, and folks pushing it weren't real uh, overconfident about it passing in all five towns. I think the, the feeling was that East Hampton was a fairly easy sell, and it ended up, I think, being the, the town that passed it by the widest margin. It was about a two to one margin in East Hampton. Southampton was up in the air. I think a lot of people were, were a little worried, and especially because uh, there was a big Republican push. And, and I think there's a narrative that was out there about this, that it was adding a tax. And it's okay. this, sort of the same stuff that was said about the CPF that ended up not really um, coming to pass. It didn't really. I mean, I think it's it's a difficult argument to say that the CPF slowed the local real estate market down, <laughs> right. considering what happened after it passed in 1999. But there was some real consternation about whether it was going to be approved in Southampton and uh, and Shelter Island was another tough one, obviously, and they ended up being the two tougher ones. Yeah, I think it really proves that, you know, a lot of people did their homework before they went to this election. And I think the fact that you saw so much, you know, even across the country, ticket splitting and people like really carefully thinking about each and every one of their votes just proves that like people are out there and paying attention and really, you know, doing solid, legitimate research. It's that's a great point. That's a great point about this vote. Okay. I thought that I, yeah. I think that's true nationally. And I think we saw it here too. But so looking forward now with the CHF, um, you know, 
let's talk about some of the things that 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 can be done now. The Southampton Town and East Hampton Town, in particular, are in desperate need of affordable housing measures um, that can try and turn the tide a little bit. Christy, I know there's a, there's you know a lot of this stuff is still to be decided. I think the towns are still sort of, they've put together programs for what they're going to do and how they're going to spend this money, but I think it's going to be sort of a, a moving target. Um, they can do a lot of things with this money, right? They can they can help first-time home buyers. They can build, they can buy, they can do a lot of different things, right, Christy? They absolutely can do a lot of different things. And in East Hampton, you know, at the beginning of 2022, um, that's what year we're still in, right? 2022. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, uh, a little while longer. <laughs> made um, like an all hands on housing effort, right? So they they deemed that they dubbed it all hands on housing and each member of the town board took on a different aspect of the housing crisis to study and to put forth suggestions uh, for how to move forward and improve the conditions of the housing market for everyday people, right? Um, and you know, to your point earlier, Joe, about this being 20 years in the works, I mean, could you imagine what we would have re- access to resource-wise if this had been in place before the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's think- the problem. Measures like this, the longer they're in place, the more money you have to spend. And the problem is it'll be a couple of years before we really start to see any kind of significant impact because it's going to start collecting the money. I believe they, they will start collecting money next year though. Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm that sure. they'll, they'll, they'll have money to spend next year. Um, well, but And again, and I've, I've made this point a few times with, with that guaranteed money coming in, the towns can borrow against um, projected future income. So, I mean, you know, they can go out and um, if there's a, a, a project or, you know, that they want to fund, they can they can borrow on on that future revenue, um, like they mm-hmm. did with uh, with community preservation fund, where when that first passed, and a couple of towns got into a little trouble with it early on, and hopefully they've learned some lessons um, from that. But it opens up, you know, it, it, you know, I don't want to say an unlimited amount of money, but it opens up money to you know to be able to move forward with projects without waiting for for that money to have to come into the bank. Um, which, which you know, I think is, is and, and hopefully the towns will, you know, will, will make use of that. What's interesting too, is I, there are so many different ways the money can be used. And we had an express session event this week in Sag Harbor, and we were talking about what makes Sag Harbor kind of unique in a lot of ways. And as we, as we've talked about every one of our express sessions becomes a conversation about affordable housing. And this was no, no exception. We, we, did roll into that a little bit, but the conversation was that having people in a downtown is important. And one of the ways you can do that, and I I think certainly both towns on the South Fork and maybe all of the towns on the East End are looking at creating owner-occupied apartments where where you you can add an apartment to your house. And the idea is it creates an affordable housing opportunity for someone and also makes it more affordable for the person who owns the property because now they have some money coming in and they can afford to stay here as well. This CPF, a CHF program can really jumpstart that. And I, because I think one of the things that's stopping it and Sag Harbor actually has that proposal in place and, um, they haven't had a single applicant yet. And that's one of the things we talked about is I know East Hampton, Chrissy has had something in place for a long time where you can add an accessory apartment, but it's expensive to do that. Well, and and, and I think in East Hampton, the the program is not uh, utilized as, as, as much as, um, as the town had hoped. Correct, Chrissy. Yeah. And, you know, I also, I've had um, a little bit of an up close, um, kind of like firsthand experience with this because my family has been trying to build a legal mother-daughter apartment style addition for a few years. And I've seen East Hampton Town move, and this is in Southampton Town, right? Southampton Town actually moved pretty quickly with through the ZBA and like some different approvals that were needed, building permits. They were actually really workable, like really willing to work with the family. And um and hopefully that's where we'll land at some point. But, um, you know, East Hampton, I've seen it trudge along 
projects trudge along a little more slowly. And also, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think it's tied to the lot size, right? And people are saying that it's still, it's still a bit restrictive, right? Like it, it's not meeting its full potential. Well, and I think that's important to note too, is that along with the money coming in from the CHF, the towns are are all going to have to look at um, at their codes, at town codes, and and make adjustments and tweak um, tweak codes to make these things more um, inviting and, and accessible. I, I think you know Chrissy's right. Is you've got to allow it on um, you know these accessory apartments. You've got to be able to allow it on on different size properties and kind of tweak that a little bit. And and they've all talked about doing that. I think. It I think that it be- also begs the question of whether single family zoning is kind of, you know, what's un- what's undoing outdated, what's undoing the possibility for progress, you know? Yeah. yeah. Really interesting takeaways. I guess the League of Women Voters had a forum a couple of months ago and um about the housing fund. And they were talking about multifamily in Southampton Village was historically very common and things people have just um when they renovated the the buildings there, they just um, converted them to single family use. But historically, that's happened a lot in Sag Harbor too. Yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, but that's it. You know, and one of the things about addressing the crisis, I think one of the one of the scare tactics was that people pictured the CHF funding a lot of apartment buildings. Right. You know, just plopping a bunch of affordable housing down somewhere. When you allow people to expand their properties and add an apartment, that seems to be a, a, a way everybody's comfortable or, with adding affordable housing. It, it sort of fits seamlessly into the community. Or, or, or even creating a multifamily building. And I, I, I listened to, and I, I, I forget where it was. It was, it was out West somewhere, but I listened to um, New York times daily podcast a couple of weeks ago and, and they were looking at this exact issue and it was talking about, single family zoning and and this one municipality had changed the zoning to allow uh, multifamily in these traditionally single family neighborhoods and and they you know they described um you know one lot that had traditionally been single family and and a developer came in and he built three units um you know on 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 one lot um and um you know, and it, and it was successful and it worked and, you know, they were worried about the character of the neighborhood and, you know, and, and all those, you know, and, and, and all those same things that people are, are nervous about, but it worked really well. And I think if it's done correctly and you're not building, you know, a, you know, a six story high rise apartment building on that single, what was a single family lot, if you're, if you're doing two or three, you know, not even just a, a mother daughter accessory unit, but, but to build a, a, a townhouse type type building with, with three units, um, you know, on it, I, I think, and get away from that, you know, 1950s um, single family lot, you know, suburban subdivisions that, you know, that we're all tied to, and I think contributed to part of the problem. Yeah. One of the great things about this is just like the CPF, it allows it. So, so when property values are up and there's a lot of sales, it allows a, a way to tap that flow of revenue in order to address some of the problems that result from that. And, and, you know, as property values rise, a lot more people are building single family properties. That's part of the problem. So this does help to address right. it. But Beth, there's the, one of the things that I like about this is there's a lot of other things that can happen. And there's talk about the town's partnering with people in, in like for first time home buyers, the town may actually take a share in a house basically to make it more affordable and that those are programs that can be really beneficial. Yeah, and I think we've kind of learned in, from past mistakes about um how not to do those programs um just in terms of like um you know if you give someone a first time home buyer grant toward a down payment and then they sell the house that's out of the system now there are ways in which you can phase all, all different ways of recapturing that money if the person sells or, you know, having equity in the house. And, and Southhold is still debating how they want to do that in the future. But, you know, giving giving the town a shared equity is, is one way. And I, I, I really like the, the one project that East Hampton is is 
building right now and it was before the chf money but there the it's a there's a 12 acre parcel on panago road and they're building 16 um they divided that into 16 new affordable housing lots the town the town bought the property and is going to maintain ownership of the property but allow people to come in and build houses on those lots so people are only going to be responsible to mortgage out the cost of actual building the building and when they sell they'll they'll of course get some equity in you know in and the value of the building but that land the property will will be main will the town will maintain ownership of that so whoever comes in is still buying an affordable house because you're only paying for the value of of the building itself and not the property and we all know that the land is what's so expensive on the east end i think that's you know one one brilliant way to uh to to move forward if if the towns can do that and use some of the chf money to to buy not that there's a whole lot of open space left um but to you know to buy open space and do projects like this where where the town can maintain ownership of the property but people can come in and build homes and you know and have an affordable mortgage uh, on a small home um that they're building on these lots going to be really interesting in the next couple of years to see how this has an impact but it's going to take Denise we didn't get here overnight right so it's going to take <laughs> it's going to take and and you know one of the things we talked about in the run up to this is the efforts that we've seen locally to try and foster some affordable housing just can't keep up with the demand I mean the demand is so significant and even this is only going to probably make a dent um, in the next couple of years, but it's but it's something, right? It it's going to make I think a, a good dent. This is it's something that's innovative and creative, and you know, kudos to Fred Thiel for working so hard to finally get this adopted. Um, I think that you know one of this one of the things that you're fighting against here, which Bill uh, illustrated in the point that he just made, is you know people's idea of the American dream, you know. A house, a yard, a picket fence—you know, their own place, their own property—and and that's a, that's a heavy lift to overcome that. Mm. Um, and the YIMBY folks, that organization is—you uh, know—that's they're working hard to to actually try to overcome that in people's minds. Um, you know, people really, especially in wealthy you know areas like the East End. People are really wedded to the idea of exclusionary zoning. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, that's what they want. That's what attracts them to this place. And, you know, that's a lot to overcome, really. Uh, however, I think that, you know, in in small bites, which this can accomplish that, um, it, people will accept it. Um, people, you've seen, you know, a, a, a tremendous backlash uh, I, tremendous, I don't know, but a significant backlash in the Riverhead community uh, about these um, so-called high-rise apartment buildings. I mean, they're, you know, five-story buildings with rental apartments that are allegedly affordable. And um, there's been significant community backlash against them, you know, that they're they're changing the character of the, of the neighborhood, uh, you know, that all that kind of thing, and, and that they're not really going to fulfill the, the objective, which is to provide truly affordable housing to people to give them, you know, a start in, in life and the ability to get out of their parents, you know, homes and stuff. So um, I think that I'm not really sure really why the Riverhead Town Board just took a pass on this this year. Uh, they expressed the, the feeling that we have enough affordable housing in Riverhead. Um, well, if you're talking about small rental apartments um you know that that have been built yeah i would say that's probably true but they keep building those so i'm not i'm not sure exactly what was behind that perhaps i you know speculating here that you know there was some desire to protect the success or the you know of of those kinds of developments by mm -hmm. limiting the alternatives maybe i don't really know i mean that's they haven't really articulated it but i don't know why housing is a for-profit industry in the first place yeah especially <laughs> here. now you're really getting radical chrissy uh, <laughs> elephant, <laughs> elephant in the room though isn't it though those 
high rise affordable apartment houses that that's going to actually put a dent in affordable housing across the entire east end isn't that i mean okay so panago road 16 homes that, that's terrific and i think east hampton has done a lot to provide affordable housing um specifically more than 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 south hampton but um 16 homes is a drop in the bucket of of the need for for affordable housing and um you know I, joe you mentioned sag harbor and there's a proposal there for what close to 70 units and um you know that's mired in controversy right now we'll see what that ends up being but i know you said it before in in the in the downtown business districts and, and i think riverhead is shown on, on, on main street the ability to do this but across the entire east end and downtown business districts where you have a walkable community perhaps the answer to affordable housing is going to have to be apartments in, in in one form or another and maybe they're not five-story high rises maybe it's more garden apartments or or whatever but um, it, it, that's the only way that you're going to get the quantity. That, that and you're... I, have a, I have a couple of thoughts on that, though. I think I, I think the question needs to be asked: Does high density tr really and truly translate into affordability? I mean, you know, I think with the apartments that we're seeing in Riverhead, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, my well, you, you know, but but over yeah, but over the market, but over, the market catches up. Basically. Right. Well, I, I mean, look at time. the rest of Suffolk County and Nassau. I mean, yeah, you've got some real high density development, and you know how affordable is uh, is it to rent or buy a home in these places? Maybe oh. more affordable. You know, Southampton and East Hampton are in a world of their own, really. But yeah. if you look, you know, at at the rest of South of the rest of Suffolk County and Nassau County, you know, it's not affordable. Taxes are sky high. Yeah, and, we have, you know. we've had this conversation with some of the folks. And, and one of the things is that that density is necessary for developers to be able to justify putting affordable housing into places. If you have CHF money that now can be used to supplement a project like that, you may be able to push the density down a little bit. And, and you may be able to still get those projects built, even though they're not quite as dense. Now, that means fewer units. But you might be able to build more of those projects now and getting past the, the community opposition is, you know, you're talking about Sag Harbor. I'm thinking of Hampton Bays, too, where right now the conversation about a developer proposing uh, housing over over um, stores in parts of the Hamlet. They just want to build something three and a half stories. And people are horrified by that. The idea that there'd be that much housing. That's right. how you're going to solve some of the problem is to get that housing. But that's getting past people's hesitations about projects like that is, well, is one of the difficult challenges. And we have to remember that when we're talking about affordable housing, we're not just talking about people who can afford to build a house, a single family house. I mean, it, it has to be, um, uh, you know, it has to be, you know, middle income people. And by middle income people, we, we've said this before, that's that's doctors and doctors and, and, and lawyers and, you know, and, and middle, you know, that upper middle class. But but then there's also, you know, then there's there's also the people that aren't doctors and lawyers that that are working, you know, retail shops or, or working in the restaurant industry, working fast food um, that, you know, that that all need a place to live and, and can't you know, we can't keep relying on them to commute in from from points west. It doesn't I don't feel like it solves the problem of affordable housing. We still have a lot to do about it. But I'm uh, I'll close the conversation by quoting a great philosopher, Homer Simpson. <laughs> and he was and he was he was talking about beer. But I think it's true of money, too, which is it's the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. And yeah. I think the CHF at least is creating a flow of money that has, the f money has caused the problem. Money now is going to be necessary to address it. And uh, kudos to the voters of the East End for approving what I think is another really innovative idea uh, that I hope will start to reap some benefits in the coming years. And, and, the, and the work starts now. And, and I said this last week, and I, I think, OK, now that it's passed, we can't just rest on our laurels. OK, as a community, we've done something great for affordable housing. We've passed the, you know, the community housing fund and, and we're done. 
we're, we're not done. This is now the real work starts and, and now it, it's figuring out what to do with that money and moving forward. It's the end of the beginning, basically. Yes. <laughs> this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Christine Sampson from the East Hampton Star, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Um, so, uh, Denise, we wanted to talk about town budgets are being passed in the region right now, but Riverhead's town budget sort of stands out um, in a lot of ways, right? Well, um, <laughs> like everything else, <laughs> uh, I mean, I I haven't actually. I'm in the middle of researching whether or not Riverhead's the only town that on Long Island that has uh, pierced the tax cap, the tax levy limitation. We know what we're talking about, but maybe other people don't. And that's a two percent cap on the generally speaking, a two percent cap on the increase of the tax levy from the year before. Um, so in order to pierce that, um, the town, the town must adopt a local law that, um, author, that authorizes it. Um, and that Riverhead did that, the, the supervisor's tentative budget, uh, pierced the tax cap. Um, they need a supermajority basically to approve well, it, to, right? to pass the local law. Yeah. You yeah. Need a supermajority which they had, they passed that uh, unanimously. Uh, the town supervisor's budget pierced the tax cap. Um, and then town board members, council members um, proposed and uh, uh, budget amendments that six of which impacted the tax levy, increasing it by $578,000. And so wow. the tax cap was pierced even more um, and, um, and there's no real re, there, there's no real repercussions to the town for piercing the tax cap, correct? I mean, no. I, I know with school I, districts it gets a little it gets a little funny, and there's a lot more restrictions if they pierce the cap. Well, the, the voters have to approve it too. Right. I mean, that's not the case with a town budget. Um, but but so they increase the they increase the amount by which the budget pierced the tax cap with these six amendments. Um, and the supervisor voted yes to approve and this these amendments, um, five of the six of them. She only voted no on a fifty-four hundred dollar uh, amendment that to give, which uh, provided a salary increase for the town board coordinator. Um, mm. But she voted yes on the other ones, uh, including one that provides $150,000 to pay uh, some of the electricity costs for the ice rink at Veterans Memorial Park, which the town prior to um, those budget amendments, the town board approved a contract that, that had a clause requiring the town to pay that money. So they kind of like, you know, boxed themselves in there. They had to amend the budget, her budget to fund that. The town supervisor voted to approve that contract with, with that clause in it, voted to approve the $150,000 resolution. I, I don't mean to be tedious here, but when it came down to it the other night, voted against the budget, which was kind of, you know, it's hard so to understand. So voted in favor of she all voted, of the steps. She voted in favor of everything, but then voted against the budget. and. Um, explained it in a way that was uh, somewhat incomprehensible. So I don't know. Do those things anyway. have a real impact locally? <laughs> do, do, do you think there's a price to be paid for that politically with the, with, you know, when it comes time for a vote, do, do vote, do taxpayers remember that stuff? Well, I mean, I think what you see traditionally, even before there was a tax cap, you see people in elective office <clears throat> increasing the budget more on off years yeah, and playing that game. Now, <clears throat> what the tax cap did is it really limited their ability to do that. So that in an election year, if you are trying to sort of art, like not raise taxes even to that 2%, right? Which happened in Riverhead last year, you've really lost the opportunity to keep pace with the 
growth in expenditures that all you essentially a lot of which you don't have the opportunity to say no to. I mean, you know, health insurance costs, for example, pension costs that, that you know your pension contribution is set by the state comptroller. So you know, there's a lot of built-in expenses. You collective collective bargaining agreements, for example, mm-hmm. that you have to cover. And if you're not keeping pace with those increases, well, now you're boxing yourself into a corner, really, the following year, um, which may be an off year, and you may feel more comfortable raising taxes a little more because you're not up for re-election that year, putting yourself putting yourself, of course, in the in their position, um, but you've really lost that ground that you can't make up. So it's kind of short-sighted not to, um, you know, to go with the 2% tax levy increase um, unless you're really flush, like the, like towns, some other towns are, who shall remain nameless. But it's a town like, town like Riverhead, you know, that was, I think, a tactical mistake on the part of the town supervisor last year in an election year having a, a small, very small tax increase to be able to say, I have a small tax increase. And then now the, the following year, you kind of screwed yourself. I don't know, you know. But it affects school districts too, right? She, she uh, voted against it. And, and yeah. she voted, you know, and, and, railed against against the, and railed against the council people. They blindsided her. They did this, they did that. She called one of them a cowboy. It was an interesting <laughs> meeting. <laughs> it's always interesting over there. This, yeah. this, bottom, bottom, bottom line, though, is it's a really bad year to be raising taxes 4%. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, people are going to, to Joe's point, people are going to notice, yeah. that, I mean, a 4% increase in a pro- in your property tax is is uh, is 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 significant. Um, when It's going to be about 120 bucks a, a year yeah, for a, 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 a house, like the average house. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. That's how yeah, much. That's, how much yeah. per year? Uh, about 120 bucks a year for a house that's um, assessed at fifty thousand dollars. Don't forget, Riverhead's assessed value is like 10 percent of the actual value, yeah. the market value. So if you have a five hundred thousand dollar home, roughly speaking, your taxes are going to go up at 120 dollars a year on top of whatever they're going up for the school and the you know. Right. I mean, it's a and the schools always impact. and the schools are affected by this tax uh the cap on tax levy increases uh this was a, a an Andrew Cuomo measure right and i the funny yeah. thing about it is i feel like there's no way you can ever take that back away i think it no. was put in place yeah. because there was a real escalation at the local level on a lot of the ta- the local taxes and so um it was put in place to try and tamp that down I don't know that anyone's ever going to have the political courage to suggest that it might have to go away. Um, Well, they didn't make it apply to themselves, the state, you know, I mean, this was really, I mean, if you think back on it, this was really Andrew Cuomo is trying to get control of runaway school spending. That was Mm -hmm. really his target. Mm -hmm. Like how many times did we hear him say that, you know, school superintendents shouldn't be making more than the governor, (laughs) you know, that seemed to really bother him. (laughs) <laughs> uh, sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. But but really, like, he, you know, there was a sense of runaway school district spending, runaway special district spending. And so he did like a lot of things to try to address that, forcing consolidation. He had the idea that he was going to do that. Um, and, you know, I don't know how truly effective it was, but, um, you know, here we I, are. To, and, an ex- to an extent, I mean, you know, I mean. I mean, I remember the days of, you know, seven, eight, nine percent, um, you know, tax rate increases year after year after year in the school mm-hmm. districts. And and I think it, it got a little bit of a handle on on that. I, I, I think it was, you know, it, it appeared to be fairly successful, although I think yeah. districts I did, there was no there was no real consolidation or anything like that, though. No. I mean, that, that no. was part of his no. whole effort, too. I, yeah, I and Chris, but, Chrissy, I, I, it also affects small school districts uh, disproportionately because I know that a lot of the smaller school districts on the South Fork, their budgets vary um, from year to year pretty significantly, and and they feel a little bit handcuffed when they when they hit a year that um, they may need to go up a little more than than usual. They can't really do that, or they they have to try and get a tax uh, a tax increase approved by voters. It's a little tricky. 
they put a lot of um they put a lot of emphasis year to year on like we're gonna have to if we don't pass this budget we're gonna have to cut teacher positions and cut programs and services right so like there's a real fear factor that they have to use as a tool almost right to say to their community like look at Bridgehampton Bridgehampton's had to do a tax cap piercing budget like two or three times since the tax cap started right mm -hmm. and um you know it also uh, Joe to your point about some of the smaller school districts especially districts that only go to like up to eighth grade and then they have to send their um high school kids um to like East Hampton or Southampton on a tuition paying basis you don't have a choice like whatever your district's um tuition rate is negotiated with like the larger district and you have 150 kids in your budget and next year 200 kids show up for the first day of school like you have to have and this gets to you know a point that we were thinking about talking about about school district reserve funds but like that can really throw off your budget but, in a major but, way that, but that's an that's an argument for consolidation though isn't it too right. and, and and i know that there's a there's a whole home rule factor and, and people like their, their small school districts and they you know local control local well, control of your school really districts but but when yeah. when spending gets you know you know I, I mean we did a story this week on on you know on 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 one school district that that is in that situation that sends tuition kids and the parents are complaining that because there's less I think it was springs because there's there's less money in the in the springs budget that 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 they feel like their kids once they get to high school are less prepared because they're they're seeing less options than kids in the bigger school districts get and i, I think the discussion was about um you know spanish language program and i think the issue had to do more with finding finding a teacher willing to come in and you know and and teach on the east end right now with all the you know affordable housing and traffic issues you know coming into play but if there's no spanish language program for for the kids in that school then they get to high school and those kids are six years ahead of them in in spanish language you know lessons and and um i understand local control and i'm a proponent of that but sometimes you got to think bigger picture and, and maybe there is an argument for consolidation maybe not with springs but but uh you know i'm not pointing a finger um you know but with a lot of these smaller school districts to have you know to have shared services and shared expenses of of a larger school district and you know there's I arguments against that too you get in this big bureaucracy and you get you know six superintendents all making 300 grand a year and you know and, and there's problems with that too but maybe it's a little more equitable for the kids I've covered districts um, throughout Nassau and Suffolk County in past, you know, journalism positions. And I have to say, I've seen more shared services among the East End schools than in a lot of other places. Like there's a, already a high level of cooperation from shared sports, those tuition agreements for the high school kids in general, you know, Bridgehampton and Southampton have a, a new program that they're working on together for like a mock trial team. So that's a club that's shared. You know what I mean? Like not just a sport that's shared, but now it's mm -hmm. um, getting into different aspects of it. Transportation, school busing is like one of the top areas where they share services. Mm -hmm. If, you know, East Hampton is sending three kids to Sequoia, you know, alternative high school in Sachem and Southampton is sending three kids and Sag Harbor is sending one. Why does each district have to send its own school bus? You know, clearly six or seven or eight kids can fit on one bus, you know? Right. So like that's one of the top areas where they're sharing services more so than a lot of other districts that we um, have on Long Island. 124 school districts on Long Island, each with a superintendent. Yeah, with a with a six figure salary and and lots of administrators under them as well. That's mm -hmm. part of the problem. Chrissy, you wrote this week about um, I believe it's East Hampton School District is tapping a reserve account to make some repairs, right? Yeah, so it's going to be at nearly a million dollars and um, different projects, boiler repairs, new floors, um, you know, fixing new, like fixing rusty and wooded, uh, you know, rotting edges in the sports dugouts in the baseball field, you know, it's like a lot of different projects that are all adding up to like just under, like just under a million dollars, but they're not going to raise taxes in order to accomplish this spending, right? Because they've had it set aside in a reserve account since May. So 
voters in East Hampton school district approved, they gave permission for the school district to get to start a repair reserve account, right? So end of the year surplus, if you have extra money, you can either give it back to the taxpayers in the form of a tax levy decrease next year, or you can hang on to it, put it in a reserve account at the end of the school year. And it's like a savings account, right? So now East Hampton voters approve that. The school board put $2 million of extra funds at the end of the year. And now the all the school board has to do is hold a public hearing to explain why they need to use these resources, which they did this week. And the process worked, right? It worked exactly how it's supposed to be because, you know, the district won't have to go out for a bond to levy extra taxes because they already have this money set aside. And you can argue like, well, how much the end state, they they cap this, the voters cap it, right? So the East Hampton Reserve Fund is capped at um, 10 million or 5 million over 10 years, right? And they can't exceed that cap unless the voters give them permission. So the voters have control over this system, right? In a lot of ways. Um, Other like the capital reserve account, you have to have a community vote in order to use those funds for something, right? So the voters have a role here and it's really kind of like a smart budgeting tactic. Um, Then again, you can also make the counter argument in that, you know, how do they wind up with these millions of dollars in extra monies at the end of the school year? And is that over budgeting? Are they kind of like working that into the existing budget? You know, I'm, can you tell I'm a nerd about this stuff? Like, I can just keep but going no, if you no, want no, me to. But no, I no, what's a good point? It's good. It, yeah. it is. And the the alternative the, the alternative is Bill in West Hampton Beach just recently, and I find this fascinating too. The 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 strategy is well, we we borrowed money to do all of this work 20 years ago. That is being retired. That debt is being retired. So we're going to borrow again to do a whole bunch more work and it won't have any budget impact because we've paid off the old debt. This is just replacing it with a new debt. But that, you mm-hmm. know, at a time when interest rates are rising, that starts to be uh, a, a little less economical. I think the districts that are thinking ahead and putting reserve accounts in place, uh, they may be better positioned. Um, I, well, I, like, I like the fact that the voters have control over the reserve fund that, that Chrissy's talking about. But at the same time, I'm feeling like if 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 a district and I'm not saying East Hampton is, but if a district is over budgeting to to feed these accounts, then maybe that's money that that's better returned to the taxpayer or not charged to the taxpayer in 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 the first place. But I, I think as as long as you know, as long as the voters, um, you know, and the district residents are okay with that practice and are keeping an eye on it, and there's a limit on it, then then I, I think that that works. Um, and, and Joe, I, I don't know how much the interest rates are on on that kind of money in in, in West Hampton. I I think the municipal bonds at, at that point are fairly are fairly low still, and they're you know they're a district in in good standing. But but yeah, the argument there is you got to wait ten years, twenty years, fifteen years in, in order to make repairs. And um, you know somebody said you know the, the the repairs that West Hampton Beach you know they proved recently making now are are really long overdue um because mm-hmm. they had to kind of wait to make those repairs so maybe east hampton's got a better plan if they can every couple of years spend a million bucks um and keep things in good shape that's i think that one of the quotes was from the board members is this is our house and we've got to you know and we've got to take care of it I, I think that makes sense i can see both sides of of an argument on that but i i think anytime you're overtaxing taxpayers you're going to get some backlash to to that and um you can call it good planning or you can call it you know collecting too much money depending on which side of the fence you're on yeah there's an taxpayers will make that argument sorry Beth. yeah yeah i mean waiting to do the work you know i mean the cost of labor and the cost of materials is certainly a lot more now than it was 10 years ago so and you know it's it's a little bit of an ounce of prevention too like in east hampton's case they have you know, boiler, like the boiler system at each of its three campuses, you know, if you do like maintenance and some fine tuning on your boilers now, that avoids a disaster three or four years from now when you need to replace them all together, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, 
Um, and, you know, to get back to an earlier point we were making about smaller school districts, to give an example, like the, the state allows certain types of reserve accounts, right, for municipalities, school districts, et cetera. So one of the things that like in Springs is talked about is a tuition reserve account, right? So if you have extra funds, you can save it for next year when you might have an unpredictable number of children that you have to pay tuition for at the high school, right? So, hey, Fred Thiel, if you're listening, you know, that's something that some of the districts have been talking about. So maybe that's a possibility, you know, your next it's big a little, a little flexibility. So, so, so but, but I mean, we, you know, we, we were talking about the, you know, the tax levy cap cap a little earlier to, to help prevent you know overspending in the school districts and i'm i'm i again devil's advocate the critic would say that this is these are the school districts just finding loopholes and ways around that you know that 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 tax the the tax cap by bringing in that money now and then and then spending it later so maybe that's a good thing maybe again that maybe that's good planning maybe that's okay so we you know we don't know what we would do if we had 50 more students next year they have to pay tuition so it's good to have a savings account but again if if they're going to max out how much money they're bringing in every year to fund these different accounts um that uh, uh you know again some people might have a, an issue with that yeah absolutely this is behind the headlines on wliwfm i'm joe shaw my co-host is bill sutton we're with the express news group our panelists today are christine sampson from the east hampton star beth young of the east end beacon and denise civiletti of riverhead local so in the time we have left I, there's a couple of things i really want to hit um, and Chrissy, you wrote this, you, the star wrote this week about there's a blood donation shortage going on right now, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, so before the pandemic, the New York blood center had 500 blood drives a month, right? Stopped overnight. Um, you know, 30 months later, um, you know, the New York blood center is reporting they've only recovered about 50 to 60% of those opportunities. Um, you know, it's it's they've they've they're in a, a consistent shortage. They need to be collecting thirty to thirty two thousand units per month, but it's been as low as twenty eight thousand a month. Mm. Um, and you know that's not just whole blood; that's also platelets and plasma. Um, you know, during the pandemic, people were uh, what is that terminology for the uh, the coalescent convalescent blood donations, right? For people who had had COVID and they they have antibodies now. Mm-hmm. All sorts of reasons why people should donate blood, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, and it, this is just another fallout from the pandemic that we're yeah. just starting to feel. I think there's so many of these things that that the the impact of it is starting to be felt now. Um, it takes a little time um, to work through the system, doesn't it? And, um, yeah. But you're right. I, you know, you don't stop and think during the pandemic, all of those blood drives just had to stop completely. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're out there and you're able to get out to there, there are pretty regular um, blood drives and lots of ways to donate. And if you can get out and do it, uh, it it'll help get things back to normal, I think. Um, also, um, Denise, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Conic Bay Medical Center. Um, we had an event. Uh, within the last couple of weeks, and we talked about the future. Uh, and Peconic Bay Medical Center is doing a very big project up there right now with their uh, emergency room, right? And but but there is a trade off for that. Um, well, uh, I, I mean, if you're re- are you referring to the closing of the skilled nursing facility? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know that it's directly linked. I mean, they they've made a decision which we reported a week or so ago to close the um, skilled nursing facility, which they said they've seen dwindling demand for, and mm. which they see, you know, the, the need for skilled nursing services, they say can be fulfilled in other places, namely, you know, other nursing homes in the area, including one in Riverhead about a mile away from there. And like, they, we really need the room for um, acute care, you know, clinical clinical rooms, acute care services, which they've seen a, a tremendous boost in. And part of that certainly is the increased volume in the emergency room. I and mean, they're, they're projected to see 38,000 emergency room uh, visits this year. So they are embarking on um, an ambitious um, expansion of the emergency department. 
that they, when they built that critical care tower a few years ago, they included on the ground floor a shell space that was not yet finished, that they didn't finish um, to expand the emergency department. And now they're expanding even beyond that um, to kind of square off the corner of the critical care, care tower building. And they're going to add nine, uh, nine treatment rooms, which are going to be focused on trauma and critical care, uh, like the most critical cases. It's going to include an MRI in that, in that section. And, um, you know, they're responding to demands in the community for, you know, emergency care. Uh, yeah, it's going to be like really skyrocketing. Sorry, it goes Denise. up about seventy-five percent, right? The capacity, I think. Sorry, the, go yeah, ahead, the Christine. space, the, the square footage, about seventy-five percent. Yeah. Well, Forgive my lack of knowledge on this, but is Peconic Bay a private, like a Northwell facility, a privately uh, run hospital, or is it like a state-funded hospital? No, it's part of the Northwell. It's part of Northwell Health, which is a private, not-for-profit corporation, and um, it has been. I think they, you know, um, twenty. 16, I think they, they became part of that network. Don't mm -hmm. quote me on that. Um, it's, but it's been a few years. Um, they've also, I mean, you know, they, they expanded other areas of service since then. They started with an interventional cardiology uh, service so you can get, you know, stents put in and things like that now where you, before Northwell came along, you couldn't, uh, they, you know, they purchased, they, they purchased the Mercy High School campus. It's like 24 acres that kind of surrounds the hospital campus uh, on uh, on two sides, and uh, you're going to see, I think, uh, significant expansion of the hospital using, you know, on onto that land. They are already working on uh, creating an office building out of the uh, former junior high school building. So they're saying they're still developing plans for the for that, you know, the rest of the land. There's a big football field and such. So I think we'll be seeing a lot of um, expansion of the hospital in over the next decade or so. That was always Andy that Mitchell's vision, right? He he, in, he envisioned a, a expansion of Peconic Bay into something more like a regional hospital. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's beginning to fill. It has been filling regional needs. I mean, it's a trauma center now. It's a stroke center. They've got this interventional cardiac care, um, and so I mean, you know, what they're precisely going to do with the um, nursing facility, they they are not saying yet. I think they have some ideas on it. I think I have some ideas of what they might be, but you know they're not saying that. Other than they're going to be, it's going to be clinical care. Uh, it's going to increase their clinical care capacity. So um, stay tuned. I think we might hear something about that after the holidays. The ER there is always tremendously busy. Yeah, it um, really is. I mean, they yeah. just line the hallways with beds, waiting yeah. for people to get into rooms. It's it's yeah. It's they need they need <laughs> space, and I mean they're drawing from. For, uh, for a lot of years, that's the only place you could places. take them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And Riverhead itself has grown. So, yeah. you know. So, we're out of time. Uh, uh, we've got, we didn't run out of topics before we ran out of time, which is always a good thing. We got more we could be talking about, but we'll come back. We're actually going to be off for two weeks. Uh, there'll be other programming in here, but we'll be back in, uh, I guess that would be early December uh, for pre-holidays. Uh, so hope we'll, you'll come back and join us then. I want to thank our panelists today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon, and Chrissy Sampson of the East Hampton Star. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. to Bill Sutton, my co-host uh, from here at the Express News Group. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Joe. And so we will see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for joining us here on Behind Headlines.